Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's continue to worship by turning to sing together number 87A, all the stanzas of 87A. join now together in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we come into your presence. We're thankful for the freedom that we have to uh, come before you and to offer up the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise which arise as incense before you through the mediation of Jesus Christ, acceptable in your sight through his sacrifice. And we thank you for the Lamb of God who gave himself for us. And we thank you for your saving purpose for the nations of this world so that we can say that we have been born in Zion. By your grace, you've given us new life. You've given us a name and a place in your covenant purpose. We've made, you've made us partakers of your promises in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that wondrous grace which accounts for all the goodness, all the stability that we have in our lives, the hope that we have for the future. Lord, we're thankful for the ordinary routines of our lives. We're thankful for the reoccurring 
a day of rest and worship in which we can gather uh, to worship, in which we can put aside our daily labor and be refreshed in body and soul. We thank you for the routines of work and sleep, of meal times and recreation. We're thankful for the predictability of lives that are blessed with stability, and we recognize that this is a precious gift. We don't want to take it for granted. We know that those whose lives are constantly in turmoil uh, because of political unrest or oppression or persecution, uh, they do not experience the same kind of tranquility and peace that we enjoy. Most of us have enjoyed it in our entire lives, and we give you thanks for it, and we want to be good stewards of it. We don't want to become bored with these gifts. We don't want to take them for granted. We want to treasure them. We want our chil children to value them, regard them as precious. Lord, we pray that through these things, your uh, kingdom might advance, that you would carry on your work within us through the ordinary means of grace that we're privileged to enjoy from Sunday to Sunday. And by these means, build us up and equip us to glorify you in our daily work and in our interaction with the people of this world as we labor, knowing that our labor is not in vain, knowing that you have not abandoned the world, knowing that you are accomplishing important things for eternity through our daily lives. Equip us for that, we pray. We are thankful for that good news of salvation that is proclaimed from day to day throughout the world, bearing fruit, accomplishing your purpose, and we pray that you would help us also to receive your word with that meekness uh, that uh, is receptive to your correction, to your instruction, and that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds more and more to offer up ourselves as living sacrifices to you. So help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, according to your promises in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's turn for our first scripture reading to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans 1. And we will read the first 18 verses. Romans chapter 1, first 18 verses. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, 
that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So far from this reading of God's word, let's now turn to sing together Psalm 32b, all the stanzas of Psalm 32b.
Let us now turn to the book of Habakkuk, and we'll read uh, from the first chapter, and then through verse 4 of chapter 2. It's on page 810 in your pew Bibles, page 810. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses, he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's also turn... 
in our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 23. Lord's Day 23 is on page 224 in our book of forms and prayers. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction Righteousness and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith. That's a phrase that we read in Habakkuk, which is uh, repeated at least four times in the New Testament. It's a phrase that's been described as the, as the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. It's a phrase that is quoted by the Apostle Paul uh, in his letter to the Romans to introduce his exposition of the gospel of justification by faith alone. And that's the theme of this Lord's Day before us this evening. In Habakkuk, uh, this phrase is the Lord's answer to the prophet who is himself dismayed by God's inscrutable ways. And uh, the prophet is facing two problems and the first problem is the fact that God's people appear to be sinning with impunity. There is wickedness among the people of God, and they appear to get by with it. But from there, another problem arises. And that is the fact that God then judges his people with a nation, with the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, who themselves are ruthless and cruel and in fact, far more wicked than Judah. And so his dilemma, his problem, his question is, how is the righteousness of God revealed in this way? And God's answer to him, basically, is to trust in him. To trust in him totally. To trust in him without reserve. 
uh, forsaking all pride, forsaking all human wisdom before God's righteous and holy ways. And we hear the prophet arriving at that conclusion that's described uh, in the final chapter where he describes the most dreadful circumstances externally, though the fig tree may not blossom, though nor fruit on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation, God is my strength, despite these dreadful circumstances that may surround him, he puts his trust in God. Faith, faith that, that justifies, is a humble reliance upon God alone. It is trusting in his word, it's trusting in his wisdom, and it's trusting in his way of salvation. And that comes to very, very sharp focus, especially at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom God's saving righteousness is revealed. Life, true life before God is by faith. Believing. Believing all this, to use the language of our, our catechism. How does it help you now that you believe all this? Well, that refers to the Apostles' Creed uh, that has just been explained. That refers to the work of the triune God, our Creator, our Redeemer, the one who sanctifies us through His Holy Spirit. But with a laser focus upon Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer, we are righteous before God only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That's the center of the gospel. That's the theme of this Lord's Day before us. We are righteous before God only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And we are righteous before God with a righteousness despite our sin and evil. We begin by reflecting on what uh, Habakkuk says about faith as something that is utterly opposed to all pride. You hear that contrast, don't you, in verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. People who are confident in their own right to figure out the truth for themselves without God. People who are confident in their own ability to figure out the truth for themselves without God. They are proud. People who think that there are no clear and certain and sure answers to life's most important questions from God... Well, they're proud. And people who think that they are accepted by God and that they're good enough to escape God's judgment by their own goodness, well, they are proud. The first part of the book of Romans is devoted to exposing the, 
the fallacy of such human pride in their own self-righteousness and goodness and ability and exposes the reality of sin, sin that characterizes all people. People that don't have the law of God, people that don't have his word, and people that do. Pride really excludes people from salvation. Pride cuts people off from the possibility of being saved so long as they remain proud, even though it may be a religious pride. Remember the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee who stood in the temple and prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like other men. And then he describes other men, including the tax collector that he can see. Now, he seems to be religious. He's thanking God, but actually his confidence is in his own goodness. That's what he relies upon. And in contrast to him, the publican uh, from afar off beats his chest and uh, doesn't dare to lift up his eyes to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, this man goes home justified. This man who recognizes the reality of his sin and who appeals to the mercy of God. In contrast to the proud man whose pride cuts him off from salvation. And so righteousness before God must begin with the facts. It must begin with the facts that Paul expounds later on in Romans chapter 3 where he says uh, there is none righteous, no not one. And then he goes on and he elaborates on the sin and guilt of the whole human race coming to uh, that conclusion of verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now human pride will resist that verdict. Human pride will resist God's verdict of judgment and condemnation against their sin. In fact, increasingly we realize that we live in a day where Moral judgments, especially in our day with respect to sexual behavior and practices and views, moral judgments of any kind are hated, they're rejected, they're viewed as evil. The law of God is hated. And those who uphold and bear witness to the law of God are then hated and treated as evil. Because their judgments are viewed as an attack and an assault upon people's personhood. These judgments are viewed as as destroying their emotional equilibrium and their self-esteem. And they they feel right about rising up in anger and indignation. They hate God's law. And increasingly, they hate people that dare to bear witness to the truth of God's law. People have temper tantrums against God's righteous standards. But you know what? God is absolutely and utterly unfazed by their tantrums. 
and his word, his unchanging, inescapable word will meet them. When God says the soul that sins, it shall die. That is the truth that everyone must come to reckon with if they're ever going to attain to a righteousness before God. With a righteousness that is ours despite our sin and evil. You know, there's a way of reading verse 4 of Habakkuk 2 that really, it almost sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. Actually, that which is highly esteemed among people, including human goodness and righteousness without God, is an abomination to God. This statement, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. It's a kind of statement that ought to lead every one of us to reflect upon ourselves. And to realize how we can become guilty of pride before God. And only by facing the reality of sin is there any hope for a righteousness that we may have despite that reality of sin. Now believers continue to feel and to confess their unrighteousness. That's what we hear in this confession of faith, don't we? Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, there is faith in this righteousness. Now that's a drastic statement. In fact, you know, if, if, uh, if an enemy or if somebody would say, you have broken all the commandments... You haven't kept any of them. And you're bent towards every kind of evil, you hypocrite. Well, we may very well be inclined to want to defend ourselves. And there can be a legitimate defense against such false, hateful accusations of hypocrisy. But we're not, we're not speaking before an enemy who is accusing us of being totally wicked without the grace of God. This is a confession of faith before God who knows our hearts. Who know that even, even our best works are stained by sin. Even that genuineness obedience to the commandments of God that we're, that we're able to perform by the power of His Holy Spirit falls so far short of perfection that if God were to judge us strictly on the basis of the best that we can do, we would not have a righteousness that is adequate to withstand His perfect standard. So this confession is not some exaggeration. It's in view of the reality of God's holiness and the perfection that's revealed in His law. We never measure up to it. 
Our best works are stained by sin so that none of them alone nor all of them together can serve as the ground of our acceptance with God. Paul renounces, he he rejects the idea of his righteousness serving as such a basis for God's acceptance. He judges his pre-Christian righteousness as worthless. In Philippians chapter uh, chapter 3, he says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And he's talking about his privilege as a circumcised Jew, as one zealous for the law of God, as one uh, touching the law in terms of his conduct outwardly, he's blameless. And what things were gained to me, I have counted loss, past tense. He judges them as rubbish. But he also renounces his gain as a believer as providing the basis for his standing with God. He goes on to speak in the present tense, yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may gain Christ. He counts all these things as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He renounces his pre-Christian righteousness. He renounces his post-Christian righteousness, his, his good works, as providing the foundation for his acceptance with God. See, if we are to be righteous before God, we must know that we are unrighteous in ourselves. We must know that we, we need a righteousness that is real, that can serve as our standing before God, while at the same time, in ourselves, we are unrighteous and unworthy of God's acceptance. We are righteous before God only by true faith in Christ with a righteousness despite our sin and evil, a righteousness that can look the reality of our sin in the face and say, yes, it's all true. And yet, despite the fact that I have no perfect obedience to offer to God for my acceptance, I am righteous before Him. How? Well, with a righteousness that is freely given. The incarnate God was justified in the Spirit. Now that's a statement from uh, Philippians uh, chapter, or 1 Timothy rather, chapter, chapter 3, where Paul uh, proclaims this this mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of, the God, of godliness. Great is this message of the gospel. Well, what is it? God manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. The incarnate God was justified in the spirit. 
And we might ask, and we ought to ask, well, how could that be, and what does that mean? Because the incarnate God, as we know, was perfectly righteous, absolutely holy, obedient to God according to the perfection of his law from the beginning of his life, throughout his life. He never deviated at all. So what does it mean that the incarnate God was justified in the spirit? Does that mean that he was simply uh, declared and announced to be righteous? Or simply acknowledged to be righteous? Well, to answer this question of how the incarnate God was justified in the spirit, we have to ask another question, and that is, why was God manifested in the flesh? There is a book written by an 11th century monk named Anselm who wrote a book, Cur Deus Homo. And it basically asks a question. Why the God-man? Why did God take upon himself human flesh? Well, Galatians chapter 4 answers that question. It does so this way. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Well, what does that mean? What's the connection between Christ being born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law? Well, it means that Christ came to pay off the claim of God's law that was against us. And there are two components to the claim of God's law. The first is the demand for perfect obedience. The requirement that indeed we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, according to those ten words, without ever deviating in the least bit from any of them. That is the standard by which God will judge the world, according to that perfect law. And what that means is condemnation and judgment for everyone who fails to measure up. You see, we all failed to yield that perfect obedience. And Christ came to pay off that claim of God's law against us. And Christ came to pay off the awful consequence of our failure to obey God's law. Galatians 3.13 describes that. Where it says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Christ came to redeem us from the law by taking upon himself all the demands of that law 
its demand for perfect obedience, and it's a demand for the punishment of disobedience. He took upon himself that demand. He carried it. He carried it his whole life. He carried it to Gethsemane. He carried it to Pilate's judgment hall. He carried it to Herod's palace. He carried it to Golgotha. He carried it to the tomb in which his dead body was laid. Did the curse win? Did the claim of God's broken law hold him in its power? Well, essential to the good news is the emphatic answer, no, it did not. His condemnation was not the last word. God raised him from the dead. And that means that the claim of the law was satisfied by his perfect obedience and by the sufferings that he endured in our place. And his resurrection proves it. His resurrection declared him free from that weight that he had taken upon himself. He was justified, not as a sinner, by grace, but he was justified as a law keeper who suffered the condemnation of sin in our place and who completely carried it away. That's why he was raised for our justification. In his justification, we are justified. Because he did this all in our place. You know, properly understood, we may say that we are saved by works. But not by our works. Again, the scripture is so emphatically clear on that. We could again refer to Galatians. Uh, chapter 3 where it says uh, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith another reference to our text here they don't live by their obedience to the law they don't live by their works. They live by the works of another. They live by someone else's obedience on their behalf. We're saved by the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by his saving works. We are saved by his act of obedience in actually keeping God's law. And we are saved by his passive obedience. He was obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. These works, these saving works of our substitute, Redeemer, are credited to us. That's the language of our catechism. It's expressed variously. They are put to our account. They're imputed to us. They're reckoned as our own. Uh, 
Our catechism expresses it wonderfully when it says that the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is granted, it's credited to me as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Just as if. I've taught my catechism uh, students that there's a helpful uh, way to remember the meaning of justification because you can almost find these words just as if in that word. Justification. Just as if I had fulfilled all obedience. Just as if I had suffered the penalty for the law. Just as if I had died for my own sins. Just as if I had perfectly obeyed. Because in effect, I have died to sin in the death of Christ. And I have obeyed in Christ, who did this all on my behalf. I could never do it. And he did it for me. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. If only I receive it with a believing heart. We are righteous before God in Christ despite our unrighteousness and evil. With a righteousness freely given. With a righteousness received by faith alone. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says. His faith. Now that's an important emphasis. It's not by the faith of your parents that you're saved, children. It's not by the faith of your minister. It's not the faith of a godly grandpa or grandma that can save you. Without a personal trust in the Savior, all his benefits, everything that we've described, remains outside of us. It's not our own. It's outside of our lives. No, these things must be received with a believing heart. Isn't that beautiful, simple language? We ought never to object to this language of receiving Christ and all his benefits. We ought not to object to this uh, wonderful hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. This personal faith is necessary to receive Christ and all his benefits for our righteousness before God. And so that requires a proper emphasis. And on the other hand, we must also say that faith does not save us as if it were a good thing that we do that gains God's favor in some meritorious way. I'm not saved by my faith. I'm saved by Christ. 
The faith that justifies really does nothing but receive. It's like an empty hand with nothing to offer, nothing to present to God, but just to take what is freely offered. It doesn't look to itself, it doesn't look at itself, it looks away from self to Christ. And this is not a picky distinction, right? That's why the catechism devotes a question and answer to it. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. You know, there's a way in which people can talk about their faith that ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable. As if the thing that they cling to is the idea that I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Now, that, that is a, a confession of, of, uh, of faith for a true believer. But it's really kind of a, a confession of, of confidence and assurance. But it's not the object of my faith. In other words, the, the phrase, I am a Christian, that's not what I believe in in order to be saved. No, there are people who believe they're Christians and they're sadly mistaken and they're deceived. It's believing in Christ by which people are saved. Not clinging to some idea that I'm a Christian and I resent anything or anyone that would uh, preach to me in such a way that might bring some doubts into my mind and call me to examine myself. Our faith is not in the idea that we're Christians. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Faith looks only and always to Christ. Now, justification is a, a state of acceptance with God that doesn't change. Whenever anyone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are justified and they will remain justified for all eternity. And they'll be no more justified when they get to heaven than they are on earth. Because being in Christ brings them into this state of acceptance with God that will never be revoked. Now our appreciation of it grows. Our enjoyment of it throughout eternity will grow. But the reality of acceptance with God is in Christ. It's on an unshakable foundation so that the weakest believer is just as justified as a glorified saint who's been in heaven for a billion years. And so it's a state of acceptance with God, but it's a state upon which we live. The just shall live by his faith. In Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It doesn't say from faith to works. It's a life of faith in which we continue to rest in Christ and trust in Him for our acceptance with God. 
It's true also that the faith that renounces self-righteousness and relies on Christ alone is the mother of all graces. Right? All good works proceed from true faith. There's no such thing as good works apart from being justified. But those good works never again are somehow uh, moved into the foundation of our acceptance with God. No, they're the fruits of faith. They're the evidence of a true faith. But the ground of our acceptance with God remains Christ. And Christ alone. Only. Always. And so the life of faith by which we live is a life of looking to Christ. The life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how the just lives by faith. Not only in the sense that they have true spiritual life and acceptance with God, but faith is a way of life. A life that rests in Christ. And a believer never goes beyond that, never gets beyond that. In fact, this, this phrase, uh, the just shall live by faith, is is also used in the letter to the Hebrews to describe that, that true faith that is a persevering faith that continues to trust in the Savior. In verse 37 and following it says, Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, who live by this faith in the Son of God. And that is our salvation. We are saved. We are righteous before God only by a true faith in Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. We never get beyond it. Amen. Let's respond by turning to sing together number 517 all the stanzas.
just a brief uh, note before we pray, an update on uh, the brother of Heidi Claussen's, Nick. We prayed for him last week. He had uh, quadruple bypass surgery uh, this past week, and uh, the surgery went well. And uh, from the report I received it, uh, apparently he either returned home today or he will be returning home very soon. So we also give thanks for that. Let's join together in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this great message of salvation, this good news of what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished, of who he is as the Almighty Savior, God incarnate, who undertook for us all that we failed to do and could never do to escape the judgment we deserve, who upheld your law and made it honorable by his perfect obedience, who provides a way of salvation, salvation that magnifies your justice and righteousness, that satisfies the demands of your law in a way of love and compassion and mercy to the worst of sinners. Lord, we praise you for the fact that this message is held out, it's proclaimed and extended to all, so that whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Continue to bless that word, to gather your elect, to call them unto Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would preserve for us this message. May we guard it and protect it. We pray that it might be recovered in those churches where it has been buried or lost, that this pure gospel might be uh, embraced and proclaimed freely and boldly, and may it bear much fruit to gather many. Father, we pray that you would bless the ongoing work of missions throughout the world. We're thankful for the many missionaries that we're made aware of and that we may support with our gifts and prayers. And uh, we pray for Michael Brown also and Italy, that you would bless his labor there, that it might continue to bear fruit and the growth and establishment of this church and its witness there. Father, we pray that you would equip us to bear testimony to the truth to tell people that the way of life and salvation is not by any works that we can perform, but by Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, help us to uphold the truth and honor of your law. Uh, may we bear witness to your righteousness, knowing that it provokes anger, knowing that it uh, leads to despair, so that people might despair of themselves and turn to Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would uh, bless upcoming events over the next week, weeks, the Young People and Young Adults Summit, this convention. We pray uh, that it might uh, truly serve for growth in knowledge and faith among these many young people that gather. We're so thankful for this, this annual meeting and for its fruit, for the great blessing that it's been to our churches and to our young people and young adults. And may that continue to bear much fruit. Equip all those who will be speaking and uh, leading, those chaperones, those that will be leading these different groups of young people. Be with the organizers as they are challenged with uh, their task of organizing such a large gathering of young people. We pray that uh, they might cooperate together as they have in the past in a very harmonious way that will truly serve for an event that glorifies your name. We pray for the upcoming class this meeting also, that it might be edifying and serve for the well-being of our churches. 
bless our sister churches. We pray particularly for those who are yet without ministers. We pray for uh, the Parkland Church in Pinoca. We also pray for Emmanuel Reformed in Irlandia, that you would provide pastors to, to shepherd them, to lead them. Father, we, we pray that you would bless our congregation. In your mercy, preserve us in the faith. We pray for our consistory. Bless our meeting on Wednesday. Bless our elders in their work, that they might be faithful watchmen over the house of God, uh, faithful to comfort and to instruct and warn, and use them also for the edification of this body, we pray. Father, we also pray that you would be with those in authority over us, our civil leaders. We are thankful for civil government and its restraint of sin. And we pray that uh, they also might be influenced by uh, your law, that they might promote what is right and good according to your standards. Uh, we pray that you would be merciful and forbearing uh, to our land despite the many ways in which we provoke your judgment and wrath. And pray that you would preserve our, our freedoms and also the freedom to proclaim the gospel and may yet, many yet be saved by it. Father, help us also to render that due submission to those in authority of, over us in whatever, whatever that context may be, that in this way we might also bear witness uh, to the truth of uh, our, our calling as Christians. And we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, that you would give them wisdom uh, to know uh, how to conduct themselves in oppressive governments, that uh, they might be faithful to your word and that they might resist authorities that would uh, require them to sin. And we pray that you would withstand them in the suffering that they face because of the gospel. Lord, we go into this new week. We're thankful for your mercies. Mercies also extended to the Klein family. We pray for Nick, that he might continue to recover well and he might regain strength. Hear us, we ask, according to your faithfulness in Christ Jesus, from whom alone we expect all these mercies that your word holds out to us. Amen. Our offerings will now again be received, first for our budget, and then secondly for Mid-America Reform Seminary. Let us now join together, confessing our faith together, using the words of the Apostles' Creed, if you wish to follow along in our book of forms and prayers, it is on page 148. Let's stand together. Let's join with the church of all ages and found throughout the world, confessing our same faith, saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy to sing stanzas one and two of 46C.
Receive now the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.